What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? Why do Catholics worship Mary? Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? Where is purgatory in the Bible? I think the Pope has too much authority. What's stopping you? You are called to communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It is the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. If you've got a question about the Catholic faith, we are here to get that question answered. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial 1 and then 205 271 2985. And of course, you can always send us an email. The address for that, ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Kabinsky is our phone screener. If you want to ask a question today on social media, that is YouTube or Facebook, we're streaming there right now. Just put your question in the comments box and we'll get to that as uh, soon as we possibly can. I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Very well. How are you, my friend? I'm fine. It's good to have you back. Glad to be back. And we have an interesting objection here from someone named Tanner. Tanner says, I have a Protestant co-worker who seems relatively interested in Catholicism, but his biggest stumbling block seems to be seems to be the priest acting in persona Christi, in the person of Christ. He says that the priest is claiming too much authority here and that no man should take the place of Christ. How can I better explain this to him? And again, that's from Tanner. Yeah, thanks. So, so uh, you know, I, we're not claiming, the Church doesn't claim that the Catholic priest is Christ or that we're somehow saved by the atoning death of my parish priest or that I'm to live my life, you know, exemplifying or living out the teachings of my parish priest, or that I should I- imitate my parish priest in his character and divine personality, <laughs> you know, in order to fully assimilate myself to the person of my parish priest. We don't believe any of that. No. Right? Those are things we believe about Jesus, that Christ's atoning death saves me, that he is the exemplar of, of Christian holiness, that his teaching is authoritative. Um, but the way that Christ gets out into the world, so to speak, and does his priestly office of reconciling us to the Father is through human agents. And, that's, and it, this is explicitly his own teaching. I mean, Christ said to the apostles, whoever hears you hears me. I mean, can you find a, a, a clearer statement of the principle of mediation? Yeah. Whoever hears you hears me. Whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. That's why Paul can say in Second Corinthians about the apostles, he says, we are Christ's co-laborers, as if God were making his appeal through us. I mean, yep. this, is, this is how it works. This yeah. is biblical language, right? And, uh, and, and furthermore, uh, I mean, how did your Protestant friend come to believe that the Bible was the Word of God? How did he come to that belief at all? People told him that. That's how he came to that belief. Sure, sure. He received it from tradition. He received it from witnesses. That's how he got it. He got it through mediation. Mm-hmm. And whether you acknowledge it or not, this is how all of our Christian faith comes to us. All of our formation comes to us through people. Well, that, that formation either bears the stamp of divine authority somehow, or it doesn't. If it doesn't, then why receive it? Yeah. Right? It, it, if it does, then we'd like to know that it's been authorized, and God vouches for it, as it were. 
And that is, in fact, the case, that Christ established witnesses with authority. He gave them a commission and said, I'm with you to the end of the age, and this is how you get the job done. You you operate as my co-laborers, and is my unique mediation, my sacrificing, sacrificial atonement, my power, my divinity, my glory, but, uh, but I will affect it in the world through your agency. Tanner, thanks so much uh, for your email. Here's one now from Catherine. I have attended Catholic masses and heard songs being sung to Mary, things being hung on Mary statues, chants or prayers being sung to Mary, etc. during the mass. Well, if the mass is being called a sacrifice to God, then wouldn't these things be worshiping Mary? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So uh, I want to distinguish a little bit between maybe some of the embellishments that come into the celebration of the liturgy, uh, which are variable and uh, subject to the decisions of local clergy and music directors, things like that, and the things that really constitute the Mass essentially. And the things that really constitute the Mass essentially are spelled out for us in the Church's liturgical books, especially yes. the general instruction on the Roman Missal and the lectionary and the, mm-hmm. this kind of thing. And, the, and the, the Roman Missal, primarily, and then the instructions on the Missal and uh, the lectionary readings and etc. And those, we have what we call the ordinary of the Mass, which are those prayers that are always in every Mass and don't ever change, and mm-hmm. then there are the, the variable parts that change with the liturgical season and the date and so forth. But if you look at those elements of the Mass, it really are the same wherever you celebrate the Mass anywhere in the world. Uh, you'll find that the entire orientation of the thing is to the Father through the Son with the Holy Spirit. That that that's the that's the orientation. The entire thing is that we come to participate in Christ's own sonship and priesthood, and through Jesus's self-offering made present for us on the altar of sacrifice in Holy Eucharist, that we come into intimacy with the Father. And the entire rite is a sacrifice and offering to God. Now, it is clearly a part of Catholic life and practice that we uh, venerate saints and seek their prayers and intercessions, all right? And that can be done sort of tangential to the liturgy, and Mm -hmm. that's really what we're talking about here, Uh, or it can even be done outside the liturgy altogether. And the the logic there is that the saints do, in fact, pray for us, and the scriptures are emphatically clear that the saints pray for us in their life in heaven, uh, and we can legitimately seek their prayers and intercessions. That doesn't constitute worship. That's no different from me asking Tom to pray for me, with the one exception that Tom's still alive and the saints have already passed and they they died. So they don't hear with uh, you know ears the way Tom can hear me. Uh, the Spirit of God can make that known to them in some extraordinary way. But that, that's the only difference. Um, and uh, the sort of the celebrating the lives of the saints, honestly, um, is not qualitatively different than throwing a birthday party for your five-year-old and uh, and inviting the guy with the pony and the and the animal balloons, right? I mean, why do I get the pony guy and the animal balloons for my five-year-old's birthday party? I'm celebrating him. I'm fetting him. I'm I'm. We're really trying to glory in his delightful five years and to make these offerings and these gifts uh, to him uh, and these embellishments uh, to show mm-hmm. how much we care, right? Sure. And it. it what we do by way of honoring the saints, whether it be, you know, with garlands and flowers and prayers and songs, is, is really not qualitatively different than gathering around and singing happy birthday with a funny balloon weasel on your head. <laughs> thanks for the visual on Except that. Except it's a bit more noble and august and appropriate. Yes, obviously. indeed. Catherine, thanks so much for your email. Hey, lines are open right now at 833-288-EWTN for Call to Communion. Do stay with us. 
It's called a communion here on EWTN with Dr. David Andrews. If you have a question for us, the phone number 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. We'll shout out here to Rich Jesse, who is handling our uh, social media today. So if you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, just put that question in the comments box and uh, Rich will see that. He'll shoot it to us here in the studio and Hopefully we can answer it on today's program. And of course, uh, if you are watching us on television today, uh, your best bet is going to be send us an email, ctc at ewtn.com. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones and we'll kick it off here with Mary Rosalie, a first-time caller in Allison Park, Pennsylvania, listening today on Sirius XM Channel 130. Mary Rosalie, what's on your mind today? Uh, good afternoon, uh, Dr. Anders. I'm a cradle Catholic. I really enjoy your show, as I love learning about my faith. On September 21st, my husband and I are traveling to Greece and Turkey mm. on a pilgrimage in the footsteps of St. Paul. Needless to say, we are so excited. So I've been reading and researching the life of St. Paul as we prepare for our journey, and his story is just so compelling. I'd like your thoughts and insights on St. Paul, and I will remember them as uh, I'm along the way in Greece. Thank you, and blessings to your ministry. Oh, yeah, wow, thank you. What a, what a privilege, and what a, what a wide, open-ended question, and yeah. where, where to even begin. <laughs> so Paul is, of course, just an absolutely seminal figure for Christian history and Christian identity and for the Christian theology and Christian spirituality, you name it. Um, Paul's, uh, the 13 letters ascribed to Paul in the New Testament are some of the, well, they're the earliest literature in Christian history, right? Paul wrote his epistles, probably 1 Thessalonians was the first one, um, before anything else had been put to paper uh, of the New Testament. The Gospels are much later than Paul's epistles, mm-hmm. and uh, so they're really foundational to the Church's self-understanding. Um, Paul, as you well know, was a Pharisee. He was a Jew who took uh, the traditions of Judaism very seriously and, like a lot of people in his day and age, expected the coming kingdom of God to be right around the corner, arriving any minute. And he initially thought the new Christian movement would be an impediment to the arrival of God's kingdom. He thought that Israel needed to really get with the program and uh, do the Judaism thing real hard and fast. Mm. They needed to be extraordinarily faithful to the traditions of their elders according to the pharisaical interpretation, and that was the way to bring in the kingdom of God. So since Christians dissented from that way of looking at the kingdom of God, he saw them, and they were all early Christians were Jews, of course, Mm -hmm. to be a a massive impediment to his eschatological (laughs) vision. And since the Old Testament had pretty clear rules about putting heretics to death— uh, those who go after other gods or violate the Sabbath, Paul felt perfectly justified in seeking the death of Christians. And that's how he's first introduced to face-to-face confrontation with Christians, is going from town to town, synagogue to synagogue, trying to find people who follow Jesus and to kill them. And he felt utterly justified in doing that. And then you know the rest of the story. He himself had a profound confrontation with the person of Jesus, and uh, and his whole world was turned upside down. And And what made him so special for early Christian history was that he went beyond Judaism, where he did not get that greater reception because he was preaching to people like his former self, mm-hmm. um, to um, uh, to reach out to the Gentile world. And um, when he did so, it posed a theological problem for early Christianity, namely, well, how are Gentiles to be integrated into the people of God? Because previously, Gentile converts to Judaism 
had to become Jews. They had to circumcise themselves and follow the dietary rules and all the other elements of Jewish life. And Mm -hmm. for a variety of reasons that Paul makes clear in his epistles, uh, came to the conviction that that was not necessary and that belief in Christ was the big thing and uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit, which would help us to fulfill the spirit of the law, the heart and soul of the law, which is the love of God and love of neighbor, and not to worry so much about the ceremonial or ritualistic aspects of the thing. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 2 that it's not circumcision done in the flesh by the hands of men, it's rather the circumcision of the heart done by the spirit, by which one is really a child of Abraham and a true Jew and really living the terms of the covenant. And uh, that, of course, that message was deeply controversial, even with even with Christian Jewish people at the time. And he suffered persecution from uh, countrymen and foreigner alike. And of course, ultimately ended his life in martyrdom in the city of Rome. Uh, and uh, you can visit those footprints, you know, Saint Paul in chains in, yeah. in Rome, and so forth. Um, but uh, but that's the basic outline of the story. And so when you come to the writings of Saint Paul. A good question to ask is, uh, what does this have to do with the relationship of Jews to Gentiles? That is, that is often sort of the key question to bring light, to shed light on the meaning of Pauline epistles. If mm. you think of it in terms of um, a first-century Jew who has come to believe that in Jesus Christ, God's promise of a coming kingdom has now been fulfilled— and from Paul's perspective, he seems to have think that that would presage the imminent end of the world, right? Uh, that the kingdom of God had come, and that was the fulfillment of human history. Now, we, we've learned a few things about the scope of human history since Paul, right? Um, but that, that, that eschatological imminentism, that sense mm-hmm. that, okay, we are now those upon whom the end of the ages has come. That's Paul's language. Jew and Gentile are now reconciled. The lion is, as it were, lying down with the lamb, all things have been fulfilled in Christ. Let's just get the message out there, uh, because Jesus is coming any day. That 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 is the heart and soul of Paul's letters, mm-hmm. and and what motivates him. And of course, Christians have been thinking on and reflecting about and interpreting Paul for centuries since. And as uh, Book of Second Peter says, uh, some people get him wrong, <laughs> right? <laughs> and the misinterpretation of Paul and the misuse of Paul has also caused a lot of heartache in the Christian world, particularly in the Latin West. And uh, the use and misuse of Paul lies at the heart of the Protestant Reformation. Um, and um, so we have to be alert to that as well. Personally, I'm, I'm really enamored of a school of Protestant biblical scholarship that arose in the mid-20th century called the New Perspective on Paul, which uh, really seeks to get back to reading Paul the way a first-century Jew would have read him. Mm-hmm. And when I engaged that literature so many years ago, I found, lo and behold— a, a Paul that was much more amenable to a Catholic sensibility than the Protestant church in which I had grown up. And so that Protestant scholarship on Paul was, for me, an important bridge, ultimately, to becoming Catholic. Um, I know you said you're researching Paul's biography. A, a Protestant writer who is a very characteristic of that new perspectives on Paul is a man by the name of N.T. Wright. Uh, he has a biography of Paul you might be interested in reading. Paul, a mm. biography by N.T. Wright. All right, very good. And uh, Mary Rosalie, thank you so much for your call. We hope that's helpful for you and your husband as you're traveling through Greece and Turkey. Uh, please be assured of our prayers for your safe travels. Hey, that opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 
888-298-3986. Call to communion here on EWTN. Let's go now to Francisco right here in Birmingham, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Francisco, what's on your mind today, sir? Oh, thank you. Oh, my seven years old asked me a very interesting question. Is who helped uh, Virgin Mary during the labor of Jesus? Yeah. And I explained that she has, uh, she's still virgin and the labor didn't happen. So, but I want to try to get a better explanation. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate the question. So the church's teaching, as you well know and you well stated, is that her parturition of Christ happened in a supernatural way, and she was spared the normal pains of labor, birth, and 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 the the damage to the physical body that usually is entailed in giving birth. So she is physically as well as morally intact, and has uh, about her body all of the normal uh, sort of um, structure that would constitute virginity. Okay. Um, as to how how do I explain that beyond saying this happened somehow by the supernatural power of God? I think that's the best we can do. Yeah, right? I, yeah. Beyond that, I, we, we don't really know, right? Um, and people, you can use metaphors to describe it, but um, uh, but in terms of can I give you a physical description? Absolutely not. Okay, Francisco, thanks so much for your call right here in Birmingham. Call to communion on EWTN. Our phone number eight three three. 288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Brendan is watching us on YouTube today. Brendan says, Hi, Dr. Anders. I have heard Protestants argue that the Bible canon can be established by means of Scripture alone. Have you heard of this? And if so, how would you respond to this claim? Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I, have, I have definitely heard this and similar ideas. And, and I, of course, have read books by Protestant theologians that have sought to address the, what might call the canon problem, mm-hmm. um, uh, because the canon is a huge problem for Protestants, and they, they know that, so they, they try to deal with the problem, and personally, I remain completely unpersuaded by their, by their arguments. I, I, I don't think they work at all. And the, the core Protestant view on the canon, um, and the way they try to align it with their peculiar doctrines is assert something like this. They would say, well, you know, the church doesn't establish the canon, <coughs> but the witness of previous Christians to the existence of a canon, like that's an historical fact. Mm-hmm. So they would recognize, you know, yes, the early Christian church had this canon of literature, and they can invite us to come investigate it, right? Mm-hmm. That, that it, it stands at the heart of the church's worship and experience and reflection, and so since it's there as an historical fact, tradition hands it to us for our consideration. But it's not the verdict of the church, it's not the church's endorsement that makes it authoritative as a canon, right? Mm-hmm. They would say that its authority comes uh, immediately from God by way of the doctrine of inspiration, that God made these books to be inerrant and inspired, mm-hmm. and that the individual's reception of them, while influenced by the witness of history, is not determined by the witness of history. So the canon is in principle fallible, and the way you can come to have an, an infallible certainty about it uh, is essentially that the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that wrote the books, confirms to you individually, subjectively, in your interior life, that these things are divine. So at the end of the day, what really determines the question of the canon for the individual Protestant 
is their own spiritual experience of the canon. In reading the Bible, a person becomes persuaded that God's uh, God's voice is speaking to him from these books, mm-hmm. and he can infer from that religious experience that these texts are, in fact, divine. Now, um, Calvin, John Calvin, actually uses the language of, I think he says, quote, divine and supernatural feelings, end quote, right? as if we had the criteria to determine what a divine and supernatural feeling was to distinguish it from a natural feeling. Now, uh, 20th century Protestants, evangelicals, 21st century evangelical Protestants, understand how loosey-goosey and, and like, you know, 1960s that sounds, right? Even though it was written in the 16th century. (laughs) They understand the problem with claiming that we infer the canon from religious experience. Uh, so, for example, there's a Protestant scholar by the name of Michael Kruger who wrote a book on the canon, the canon revisited. Um, and uh, when I was going through these questions 20 years ago, all the Protestants I knew were like, oh, man, that is the stuff. That's the book. That's the one that just that'll kill, that'll kill the Catholics. That's the end of the Catholic <laughs> Church. It's just the, the definitive answer to the canon question. I was totally not persuaded because this is this is the way this is a paraphrase and it's been 20 years since I read it but this is essentially what Kruger Kruger argues. He says uh, based on certain work in modern epistemology, modern philosophy of knowledge, especially associated with somebody by the name of Alvin Plantinga who was a Protestant philosopher who taught believe it or not at Notre Dame. Um Plantinga invested a lot of work to argue that there are some ideas that we can be justified in holding as true without evidence. All right. Mm. Now, he has a sophisticated argument for why that's the case. I won't go into Plantinga's argument, but the basic idea was um, there's a school of Protestant philosophy that argues at a pretty high level that you can know some things to be true and, and to rationally claim that what you have is knowledge without evidence. And the class of things that fall under that description is a very limited set of things that you can know without evidence. And what Kruger does is he says the canon is like that, that you don't infer the divinity of the canon from your religious experience. You just know that it's true. Mm. You have this kind of immediate, intuitive knowledge of its truth. Uh, that is what he understands the, the Spirit's witness to convey to you, and that there's a way of constructing that such that you're just justified in just saying, I know it, all right? And to me, that is a really cheap knockoff of the Calvin view that I know it from religious <laughs> experience. At the end of the day, I'm still just pointing to my own subjective experience, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and historically, I don't think any Protestant ever comes to believe the canon this way. Like, I think it's really false to their own experience. So I, I have yet to meet the Protestant, for example, that believes that the book of Jude— in the New Testament, mm-hmm. is God's Word, because they read Jude, and it, like, knocked their socks off like a Taylor Swift concert, <laughs> right? I mean, I, I've, I've never met the Protestant who believes in the divine authority of Ecclesiastes, because having read it, they said, this just book, this book just has to be divine. There's just no other explanation for Ecclesiastes other than God wrote it. That's not how they came to their belief in the Bible, they came to their belief in the Bible because their grandmother told them it was God's Word. They learned it from someone. They inherited it from tradition. Then, recognizing that tradition poses an apologetic problem for them, they then try to come up with justifications like this this sophisticated, pseudo-sophisticated argument yeah. that, that Kruger proposes. So I've read all that literature. Uh, if I believed it, 
I would never have become Catholic. I, I thought it was a bunch of hooey, to be honest with you, when I read it. Is that a, a technical term? That's a technical term, hooey. Hooey, hooey. Yeah. Good to know about these things. All right, Brendan, thanks so much for your question via YouTube. By the way, if you missed part of today's program, you can catch the Encore. We'll have it posted for you later today at EWTN.com slash radio. EWTN.com slash radio. Look for that uh, button that says podcasts. You are good to go. In a moment, we're going to talk to Ann in Massachusetts, also Samuel in Kansas. A couple lines open for you as well at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986 for Call to Communion. Glad you're with us for Call to Communion with Dr. David Andrews here on EWTN. Our phone number 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Here is Ann now in Massachusetts listening on EWTN television today. Ann, what's on your mind? I want to know, are the Catholics, are the Catholics the chosen people of God or Christ? Because the Jews feel that they are the chosen people of God. No matter what happened after that, they don't believe what Christ, he sacrificed and all that in the Blessed Mass. We are the Catholic faith, the chosen people. Who are the chosen people? The Jews or the Catholics? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So... One thing we have to get clear on right now is that when you use the word Jew, or you speak of Jews, most people hear that and they think in terms of modern Judaism, mm-hmm. right? They think of my, my friends that go to the synagogue on Saturday down the street, okay? And that that way of understanding what a Jew is or what Judaism is, is anachronistic, right? It, it's, it's applying a, a modern 20th century or 21st century category to the question. The word Jew, in its origins, etymologically, referred not just to a specific set of religious beliefs or practices, but to geography. It referred to people who live in, the, in Judah, uh, the, 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 the southern kingdom of the divided Israel. Okay. Right? And, of course, that didn't include you know, the, the, the 11 other tribes, or 10 other tribes, depending how you add them up, right? Um, in the north, in the northern kingdom, and uh, so you know, if you were, if you were from the north, you never thought of yourself as a Jew. You were a Hebrew, right? You were a Hebrew. Mm-hmm. Jew is a late term. When God promised Abraham that his descendants would be great, and through them all the world would be blessed, back in the book of Genesis, God said nothing about Jews. He talked about a man named Abraham and his descendants. And so, in the first line of understanding, the inheritor of that promise were the physical descendants of Abraham, some of whom would go on to become Jews. Okay. And and Jew, meaning people who lived in Judea in the first century, included lots of different religious beliefs, some of which have continuity today in the synagogue, many of which do not. So there would be people in Judea in Jesus' time who would have been Jews, in quotes, mm-hmm. by the virtue of the fact of living in Judea and maybe mm-hmm. being dis- physically descended from Hebrews, yeah. but would live their faith in ways 
totally unlike today's modern synagogue, okay, and those who live something like today's modern synagogue. And the important identification in the first century was, you know, am I, am I in historic continuity with the person of Abraham and then the law given through Moses? That, that's really the, the key question. All right, when, when St. Paul went preaching Christ among the Gentiles, the big question was not, you know, are the Gentiles the people of God rather than the Jews? That was not the big question. It was taken for granted that the promise to Abraham and Moses and the prophets still held. That the promise to Abraham, that, as, as the New Testament puts it, that he would be heir of the world, mm. still held. The problem was, how do you fit Gentiles into that picture? Not how do you exclude the children of Abraham from that picture, mm, yeah. but how do you fit Gentiles into that picture? And the teaching of St. Paul was that Gentiles are also children of Abraham by faith. And that's the whole argument of the book of Romans, that, that physical parentage um, is of less significance than having the faith of Abraham. And the faith of Abraham is the faith that believed that God could do what he said he was going to do, right? And, and so, in a sense, the people of God who mm -hmm. inherit the promise are all those that believe that God will fulfill his promises to Abraham, and the church today is very clear that that promise, which incorporated both Gentiles who believed in Christ and the descendants of Abraham according to the flesh, as it were, is irrevocable. And so it would be entirely inappropriate to speak of so ethnic Jews, uh, uh, those uh, you know descended from Hebrew stock, as it were, and even those that continue to worship the God of Abraham in the synagogue, according to that modern formula, uh, to utterly write them out of the scope of redemption and say that they are no plan of, you know, no part of God's plan of salvation would be false. Mm -hmm. And, and of course, St. Paul says that in Romans, especially 9 to 11, he talks about, um, you know, there's a kind of ambiguity when we talk about who is a child of Abraham. There's a, there's a sense in which Christians can, with full justification, say that they are children of Abraham and heirs of the promise. Um, there's a sense in which, you know, we grieve for those that reject the promise of Christ out of loyalty to, say, you know, first century Jewish practice. Um, but he also holds out an expectation that those who reject Christ but nevertheless claim that identity with Abraham are not abandoned by God. The promises of God are not null and void in their case, and that God's going to bring about the reconciliation of all things in Christ to himself to fulfill that promise to Abraham in some miraculous way. And so uh, it's it's really not an either-or kind of thing. It's more of a both-and kind of thing. Now, we definitely believe that Christ is the fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of the Old Testament promise, and that Jesus and his teaching sets the criteria for, in, for understanding and interpreting that. Mm -hmm. But that shouldn't lead us to any kind of anti-Judaism or, or even less to any kind of anti-Semitism. Well, there you go. Anne, thanks so much. And we do love both Anne, don't we? We're big on both Anne and the Catholic Love Church. it, love it, love it. Anne, thanks so much for your call. Here now is Samuel, a first-time caller from Kansas, listening on Sirius XM, Channel 130. Samuel, what's on your mind today, sir? Hi, thank you. I'm interested in the, um, the Protestant, Protestant perspective and why it was okay to drop the seven books from the Old Testament, the Deuterocanonical canon um, from the Old Testament, uh, um, yeah. Well, it, it wasn't okay to drop the Deuterocanon. 
it was totally bad to drop the Deuterocanon. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. Now, I, I know our, our call screener had said that you, you mentioned that uh, your Protestant friend thinks that early Catholics uh, didn't believe in the Deuterocanon, and therefore neither should we. And, uh, and we might bring that into the discussion, did the early church accept the Deuterocanon? And so before I answer that, we might ask the question, why would a Protestant care? Right? Why would someone invoke the witness of Christian antiquity to determine the content of Christian doctrine? Unless they were willing to admit that what early Christians thought was somehow authoritative. Now, we Catholics believe that. We yes. think that what early Christians thought it has some authority. It's what we call sacred tradition. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to determine the content of the canon by the witness of Christian history, then you'd better go ahead and swallow the whole elephant <laughs> and admit that the witness of Christian history is authoritative for your understanding of Christian faith. That's just to let tradition back in the door. Yes. Okay? Yes. Um, now, what if, what if there's ambiguity in ancient Christianity about the Deuterocanon? If there's not perfect unanimity on that question, does that mean we should be threatened by that ambiguity and professing the Deuterocanon to be canonical scripture? Well, if you're going to admit that principle, if you're going to say, well, anytime Christian antiquity was ambiguous or divided, well, we need to throw that doctrine out. Well, guess what? You just threw out the divinity of Christ. Oops. The doctrine of the Trinity. You just threw that out, right? Because that was very controversial in Christian antiquity. In the fourth century, the church split right down the middle over the question of the full divinity of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And look, there were a lot of very articulate, high-placed people in the church who denied the divinity of Christ. M much more than did so the Deuterocanon. Hmm. So if you're going to throw out the Deuterocanon because, you know, some church father didn't like it, well, you better throw out the divinity of Christ, too. Right? You see yeah. my point. Yeah. Um, now, Although no, no one who really qualifies as a church father denied the divinity of Christ, but there were clearly church leaders of, of some import and, and, okay. and note, right? I put All it right. that way. Mm -hmm. um, but is it true that ancient Christianity rejected the Deuterocanon? No. No, it, it's not true. The, early Christians were conscious of the fact that there were divergent Jewish canons. See, that was the problem that had to be solved. There were divergent Jewish canons. There was a Palestinian canon of the Old Testament. There was also an Ale Ale Alexandrian canon of the Old Testament, and they weren't the same. And before the thing was determined by conciliar authority, before there was a definitive statement from the church about this question, mm -hmm. it stands to reason when there are two options that you're going to find people in both of those camps. Sure. That's always going to be the case. And so you will find early Christians who, who cite the Deuterocanon as sacred scripture and divinely authoritative, and you will find early Christians who are a bit more circumspect about doing that because they know that there are divergent canons within Judaism, and they, they one reason or another, opt for the Palestinian versus the Alexandrian, right? Uh, but that's no different from any other question of Christian doctrine that was in dispute at the time. That's why you have things like church councils, that when these things become uh, serious occasions of division, you need an authoritative voice. Now, here's the interesting thing. They needed to call a council to determine the question of Christ's divinity. 
they never really needed to def- call a council to determine the inspiration of the Deuterocanon until the 16th century at the Council of Trent, when Protestantism decided to make this a, a make-or-break issue. So Catholics got along just fine, <laughs> preaching from, praying, reading, commentating on, and reflecting on the Deuterocanonical texts as the Bible, right? And without ever having to determine that question at the level of the extraordinary magisterium until the Protestant Church said, hey, let's throw them out. And then the Catholic Church said, whoa, 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 wait a second, buddy, wait a second. We've been quoting these books for a long time, all right? There's a long list of very important Church Fathers who have cited these texts. They've woven their way into, into theology and reflection. You just take a step back, and then the Church has, of course, the Council of Trent that says, no, they, they are authoritative, they are sacred scripture. There you go, Samuel. Thanks so much for your call today. Glad to hear from you in Kansas. Call to Communion here on EWTN. Be sure to join us for The Journey Home. We bring that to you every Monday night at 8 p.m. Eastern on EWTN television and radio. John Mark Grodi and his guests will be discussing their personal journeys home back to the Catholic Church, a longtime staple of EWTN. Do check it out Monday evenings, 8 p.m. Eastern on EWTN radio and television. Back to the phones right now for Teresa, uh, listening in St. Louis on Covenant Network. Hello, Teresa, what's on your mind today? Hello, hi. Um, You had an earlier caller who was speaking about Mary, and um, you were speaking about her virginity and um, Christ's birth. And at the end of the call, um, you made a statement that um, because she didn't experience I, I believe you said, because she didn't experience labor, as, as normally happens, that her morality remained intact. And I wasn't sure what you meant by that. Yeah, yeah, let me clarify. So, so when people talk about Mary being perpetually a virgin, you, without, without further specification, it would be possible to hear that as saying only the following, Mary never had sexual relations. Right. That you, you, one could hear the doctrine and conclude that nothing more is being asserted other than she never had sexual relations. And so when I talked about her moral integrity, I meant mm-hmm. like, you know, she didn't violate her vow of chastity. OK, but the church means more than that. Mm-hmm. She didn't violate a vow of chastity. It also means that physically her body remained intact and virginal, not not just her her fidelity to her vow, uh-huh. but her actual physical body itself remained intact even through the process of giving birth to the Christ child. So uh, that's that's what I meant. Okay, I, well, I wasn't suggesting in any way, if this is what you inferred, that that labor pains are somehow that there's any kind of moral significance attached mm-hmm. to labor pains. I, right. I wasn't suggesting that at all. Okay. Teresa, we hope that helps you and uh, clearing things up, and appreciate your call today from St. Louis. Let's go to Joe now, a first-time caller in New Jersey, watching on EWTN television today. Joe, what's on your mind today, sir? Hi, how are you? Thanks for calling my call, and God bless you for the work. Anyway, the Apostolic Creed, where we pray in, Rosary, or Chapel of Divine Mercy, when it comes to, he was... uh, Born by the, the Virgin Mary, he was suffer under Pontius Pilate, died, crucified, and was buried. He descended to dead. Why they say he descended to hell on the Holy Rosary on Mother Angelica pray? I disagree with that. 
conductor explain it to me? Why yeah, they be- sure, sure, thank you. So here, here is the difficulty for many people. When they hear the word hell, they think that that refers to the hell of the damned and that Christ would have gone and suffered the, the punishment of the damned. We do not mean that. That is not what we say. That's not what we believe. Okay. So you, you need mm-hmm. not worry yourself on that, on that point. Uh, Christ's mm-hmm. descent into hell means nothing other than his having sojourned in the realm of the dead, specifically the righteous dead of the Old Covenant, mm-hmm. you know, Moses and Abraham and Isaiah the prophet and all the rest mm-hmm. of them. Uh, whom he liberated uh, by his own uh, atoning death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. So it's just the separation of Christ's human soul from his body, because that's what death means. Christ really did die. He didn't just seem to die. He Mm -hmm. actually died, Mm -hmm. which meant that the human nature of Christ, the soul was separated from the body, and the human soul of Jesus, while his body was in the tomb, where was his human soul? in the realm of the dead, just like the when Moses died or when Elijah, Elijah died. I mean, the human soul sojourned among the dead, not, not in damnation, just the abode of the dead. And not until the ascension, when the body of Christ ascended into heaven, did the dead of the Old Covenant receive the mm. blessing of the beatific vision. Okay. And Joe, we hope that clarifies it for you. Thanks so much uh, for checking in from New Jersey. Let's see here. Uh, Forrester is watching on YouTube today. Forrester says, Dr. Anders, I've heard it said that Protestants emphasize Paul's writings, whereas Catholics emphasize the Gospels. Do you think there's any truth to this, and if so, why? So it is absolutely true that Protestants emphasize Paul ri- Paul's writings to the diminishment of the Gospels. That, mm. that is 100% true. Okay. And having been Protestant, that was definitely my experience in my own practice. Uh, but to suggest that Catholics somehow de-emphasize Paul would be entirely false, right? So, so if you go to the Mass— Clearly, the reading of the Gospels is the highlight of of the liturgy of the Word. Next to the Eucharist, this is the most important part of the Mass. Mm -hmm. They're the very words of the incarnate Christ himself. They're incredibly important to Catholic self-understanding and spirituality. Um, But Catholics, they they hear the words of Christ, they live the words of Christ, they interpret them and and apply them in their own own churches and their own liturgical practices— through the lens of St. Paul's commentary on the words of Christ, right? So, so Paul is an authoritative voice that's absolutely essential for Catholic self-understanding. So we, don't, we, don't, we, we take every word of St. Paul as, as sacred scripture, divine and inspired, uh, and, uh, and, and read Christ through the lens that, that Paul provides in the New Testament because it's inspired scripture. We don't de-emphasize Paul at all. And uh, someone that suggests that just totally doesn't understand Paul and totally doesn't understand Catholicism. Well, there you go. And thanks so much uh, for your question today. Here's one now from, looks like, Matthew watching us on YouTube. My sister is a Catholic, but she does not go to Mass. She married a Catholic, then left him, and is now marrying a Freemason and uh, wants me to go to the wedding. What should I do? All right, let me get this straight. Catholic man, Catholic sister. Catholic sister married a Catholic man, divorced Catholic man, now marrying a Freemason outside the Catholic Church, should he go, right? Yes. Well, you know very well that this will not be a valid wedding. You know that right off the bat. Yeah. Not because the man's a Freemason. Although I don't advise marrying a Freemason <laughs> if you're Catholic. That's not what makes the marriage invalid. What okay. makes it invalid is it's not happening in a Catholic Church. Hmm. All right. Um, so you have that problem. And your participation, uh, you know, could signal that, uh, hey, you've got no problem with this whatsoever at all. Um, you have another problem, however, if you stay away, 
and that is uh, maybe your sister never talks to you again, right? Yeah. That's another problem. Yeah. yeah. So um, you can you can gauge like, can I can I lovingly state my objection to the form, and yet affirm my fidelity to my sister and my goodwill towards my new quasi brother-in-law, and do it in a charitable way. And um, and you you can you can walk that tightrope, right? And it's, mm-hmm. it requires a lot of prudent discernment. How do you how do you bring those things together? And I can't tell you the specifics of how to do that because I don't know your sister and I don't yeah. know the situation. Yeah. Okay. Appreciate that. Thanks so much uh, for checking in with us. Here now is Lena in Binghamton, New York, watching on EWTN Television today. Lena, what's on your mind? Hi, Dr. David. How are you? Great. I I listen to your program as often as I can. And I want to know if you have a book out. And if you don't, you should. Thank you. I appreciate that. I do have a book. It's published by EWTN. The book is titled The Catholic Church Saved My Marriage. The Catholic Church Saved My Marriage. It's available on the EWTN Religious Catalog. It's also available, you know, wherever books are sold, Mm -hmm. Amazon or whatever it might be. Uh, we have an audiobook version that uh, nearly killed me to read that thing. Tom Tom stopped me about every five seconds and said, nope, you, you coughed, you sneezed, you burped. Take a drink of water. Take a drink of water, yeah. <laughs> but we finally got there. I got new respect for people who read audiobooks, I'll oh, tell you yeah. that. We got the audiobook. Uh, we have the Kindle version. Uh, yep, so we have that text. Thank you so much. That book is a winner. I just got to tell you. Well, you know, it was a, it was a blessing to write, and um, we, we had the EWTN family celebration this weekend, and we had the author's corner. I get to meet people who were interested in the book and talk about it. That was a lot of fun, and I'm glad people have been helped by it. Very cool. Here's a a question from S.J. watching on YouTube. Hi, Dr. Anders. Uh, Do you know if St. Augustine ever recanted some problematic theological statements he made about women? Aquinas and other church fathers have made troubling assertions about the ontology and worth of women, yet the church esteems them. I have not come across any evidence that St. Augustine has ever recanted anything like this. Yeah, thanks. So uh, I've read an awful lot of Augustine. I have not read literally every word of Augustine, but I've read piles of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And at least in the piles that I've read, I don't remember Augustine ever recanting uh, his views on women specifically. Augustine is one of the Mm -hmm. few uh, church fathers to have written a book of retractions. Really? Yes, and late in life he wrote a book where he went through all of his early literature and he said, this is what I got right, this is what I got wrong. Wow. He summarized his early books and he said, here's how I've, my perspective has changed on them. And uh, so the retractions are a really critical part of Augustinian scholarship you, to kind of get the development of the man. Um, and, uh, and to the best of my knowledge, and I've looked at the retractions, I don't remember him ever recanting anything he said about women, nor would I expect him to, nor would I expect him to. Augustine was a man of his time, um, as we all are, mm-hmm. right? And uh, uh, and basically, some form of chauvinism is, seems to almost kind of endemic to the human race, just almost endemic to the human race, and has characterized just about every culture on the planet, with very few exceptions, throughout almost all of human history. And it's not just a Christian thing; you find it literally mm-hmm. in just about every continent, almost every civilization. And uh, feminism, with the kind of full appreciation, not only for the dignity of women, but for their ability to function in civil society and take places formerly and previously Mm -hmm. exclusively held by men, that kind of feminism is really a 20th century phenomenon. Uh, And I do think that uh, that sort of the the, the genesis of it is in the Christian doctrine of the dignity of the human person uh, and the dignity that the Church has always ascribed to women. 
but I think it took an awful long time for the full appreciation of that fact to get worked out in all of its mm, various yeah. ramifications. Now, with that being said, I would like to point out that within the Catholic Church, Augustine did hold, right, and did teach, like in his book on the good of marriage, uh, along with Catholic tradition, that women uh, can't be compelled to marry against their will. Now you go, well, yeah, duh, no big deal, Andrews, that's not, that's not feminism. Well, but well, stop a minute and consider that in light of pagan practice and, and ancient Roman practice. When women were property, and they could absolutely be forced to marry against their will, mm-hmm. right? And what the yeah. church said was actually no, that their consciences have a kind of inviolable dignity that cannot be violated by any man. It's why we venerate the virgin martyrs in, uh, in the canon of the Mass, right? We actually venerate, as saints, women who said, I will not marry against my will, uh, I, I have the right to dispose of my body as I want, right? And, uh, and so the virgin martyrs of the Catholic Church are kind of the first feminists, and they use that, that freedom to dedicate themselves in virginity to Christ or to religious life, right? They used it for a noble purpose. Uh, but even for an ignoble purpose, uh, canon law recognizes that a woman forced to marry against her will is not validly married. That was a social revolution in the ancient world, and really ultimately stands at the root of what would ultimately, centuries later, flower into the kind of realization that, that a kind of healthy Catholic feminism can, can fully embrace and see as, if not fully exemplified in antiquity, has some continuity with the Christian doctrine of the human person. SJ, thanks so much for your question via YouTube. As we're heading out the door, a quick one from Joe. What's the prudent way to go about attending a Protestant service for the sake of my Protestant friends? Um, assume they have pews? Yes. Uh, sitting, I find very effective. <laughs> you know, uh, you know I, I sit, I stand if I need to stand. Yeah. Um, I sit again, yeah. stand again. You know, if I like the hymn, I might sing it. If I don't like it, I might not. Kind of like I do in the Catholic Church, you know. Um, that, you know, you're not, really, you're not really doing anything wrong if you're just sitting and standing. And your very attendance shows that you you care about your friends. That's exactly right. All right. Joe, thanks so much for your email. If you would like to send us an email for a future show, here's the address, ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. Dr. David Andrews, thank you, sir. Thank you, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday on EWTN Radio. You're welcome to join us 2 p.m. Eastern for our live broadcast, 11 p.m. Eastern for the Encore, and that's 8 p.m. on the West Coast. Check out the uh, podcast anytime, as mentioned, EWTN.com slash radio. On behalf of our great team here, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Andrews. Thanks so much for joining us. See you next time on EWTN's Call to Communion. God bless.